Welcome to the Twinkle Talks EYFS podcast. Working in the early years is busy, funny, messy and exhausting. Join me, Shana, some of the Twinkle EYFS team, special guest speakers and other early years practitioners as we talk honestly about our experiences. Whether you're listening for CPD, on your commute or to help you relax, Twinkle EYFS will share everything you need to know about all things early years. Hello lovely listeners, it's Shana here from the Twinkle Talks EYFS podcast, here to bring you another episode which I think you'll find really interesting today. I have been able to speak to Matt from Family about the importance of having those parent and family relationships. But before we get there, we know it's the end of the year for a lot of us and we wanted to take some time to celebrate you. So... Recently on our social media, there was a thank an educator campaign where you got to vote for your colleagues and nominate them for some prizes to thank them for all the amazing things that they have done this year. I thought it would be really nice to read some out. So let's take a listen. Claire has nominated Miss Povey and she says, Miss Povey is one of the most dedicated, loving, caring, funny teachers I've ever come across. She takes the time to get to know all her pupils and nurtures them wonderfully throughout their time in reception. Both my kids have had her and she is just the best. Lisa wanted to nominate Miss Holmes or Becky to the staff. She is our EYFS lead and our inspiration. She inspires, nurtures, and can make an amazing nativity costume out of a pillowcase. Kirsty would like to nominate her son's teacher, Mrs. Lee. He started his reception year as the youngest in the whole school, and this caused her some anxiety. Mrs. Lee has worked so incredibly hard with him throughout the year, and he has improved in every area of his learning. She truly is a wonderful and patient teacher, and we feel so lucky that she has been his first teacher. We can't thank her enough. Anna wanted to nominate Liz, and she says she's her hero. She's my teaching assistant in EYFS, and I couldn't do it without her. This week, she juggled making 26 jellyfish with the children and calling an ambulance for a child without breaking a sweat. Thank you, Liz. Emma has nominated Alison, who's a reception teacher and has been an amazing support for Ali during her transition from Key Stage 1 to reception teacher this year. Josie has nominated her mum, and she says she's an amazing teaching assistant in her school. After working in the same school for more than 30 years, she's a true superwoman and has always been an inspiration. So much so, I too have recently become an early years teacher. She has effortlessly supported hundreds of children over the years and deserves one huge thank you. Ali has nominated Chloe. She is an early years educator working in a private nursery. She's a room leader in the baby room and never stops. She has helped our apprentices with their coursework, guiding them, teaching them, and giving them inspiration to be the best they can be. She has also supported another room leader who was new to leading a toddler room, helping them put in place a routine and settling new children. All of this while completing a foundation degree and working full time. I couldn't think of anyone else more deserving. 
there you have it. Those are just some of the nominations, by the way. I didn't have time to read them all, but they made me so emotional. You guys, you work so hard and it was just so lovely to see you guys thanking each other and celebrating all the amazing work you do, you know? Being an early years practitioner and teacher is not an easy job. And there are some thankless tasks that we've got to do. Not thinking about punamis only, but mainly. It was just really uplifting to see how much you guys support each other. I stand by it. I think early years is the best community. Now onto our main event. I'm going to be talking to Matt from Family all about why parent and family relationships are so important. Oh, and I should say as well, um, I made a little bit of a boo-boo and I've double booked myself. So I work from home, right? And the gas man was supposed to come before I started recording this episode and they turned up halfway through. So if you hear some weird things going on, it's just me trying to talk to the gas man, making sure that he's all right, whilst also trying to host a podcast episode and record this with Matt very embarrassing. Matt was very good. Well, let the carnage ensue. Hi, Matt. It's an absolute pleasure to meet with you today, all the way from Copenhagen. Is that right? That is right. Calling to you from an hour in the future, if you can believe it. Oh, don't mess with my head like that, because now I'm going to completely lose everything I don't know what my calendar's doing now I'm going to be late for meetings but that's pretty cool right it's pretty cool for our listeners who haven't met you or heard of family please tell us all about you Matt all about your education journey and how you came to to be with family that sounds that's I'm more than happy to do so and first of all thank you so much for having me on I'm so excited to spend the next you know hour or so talking about all things family partnerships and exciting things you say hour might be an hour and a half depending on this boiler map (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's right. Depending on when the boiler man comes in. Uh, but that'll be a good time for me to break and, and realise all the ways I've Can messed up so far. Oh, okay. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe run. Let's see how the first <laughs> half goes. Um, so my, my name's Matt. Um, I work for a company called Family. That's family without an I, F-A-M-L-Y. Um, and I work as the director of brand and comms here, which essentially means that it's like a fancy way of saying I get to spend my life talking about family and family partnerships and parent partnerships and technology in the early years for a living, which is a pretty nice uh, living indeed. I feel like a total pretender being on your podcast. I've been listening to a few. What? Well, I've been listening to a few podcasts in advance and it's like amazing speech and language therapists and people deeply <laughs> knowledgeable about you know, messy play and all sorts of interesting things. And unfortunately, Shana, my early years pedigree starts and ends with a four-year stint at Harpenden's premier indoor play centre, Big Space. No way. I used to live in Harpenden. You're joking me. No, I am not. What? Born and bred. I was born on Cowper Road. Cowper Road? Okay, I'm not going to say where I used to live because people start like hunting people down. I'm like, are you crazy? Uh, How did we not work this out in all of the preamble? I don't know. That's so random. Are you kidding? <laughs> well, at my time growing up in Harpenden, um, I spent a lot of time working at Big Space. Unfortunately, that, like as I said, not necessarily particularly pedagogically rigorous early years experience. It was mostly me, you know, with 15 four-year-olds sort of hanging off me as I tried to run around the play equipment. And... That's pretty much what we, yeah, that sounds about right, yeah. Oh, it sounds about right. Maybe it is more pedagogically rigorous than I, than I imagine. <laughs> but I will say since then, 
for those who don't know uh, family we we're kind of the uk's only uh, early childhood platform and actually the leading kind of provider of technology for uh, software specifically for, for early years settings um and so i was lucky enough to start family as a kind of a our content, our sort of in-house journalist writing up our blog and all sorts of other things, which has allowed me to sort of spend one, almost seven years now talking to and interviewing and listening to some of the kind of great minds in early years. Not, not dissimilar from what, you know, you get to do as well now, Shana. Mm, um, I'm pretty sure you've had a higher caliber. Any? Well, I, the fact I'm on your podcast is a sign, perhaps, that... Uh, <laughs> you're dredging the bottom of the pile. No, I think you're wonderful, but please also name drop. Oh gosh. And now see, I'm going to offend people that I don't name. My first, I think my, 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 the first person I really, um, got to know in the sector was Sue, Dr. Sue Allingham, who's absolutely wonderful. And I've known her for a long time and she's informed a huge amount of what, what I've got to know, but also people like, um, of course, uh, Julian Grenier and, uh, and, you know, Aaron Bradbury coffee and Mina, Mina yeah. and, uh, also, people like Jan Dubiel. I, I mean, I feel like now I've started naming, I'm going to be in trouble for missing important people out. But also yeah. just great people in the sector, you know, not just sort of the experts, but also people running settings like uh, like Ruth Pimentel and Neil Leach. And so it's it's been it's been a great journey. I mean, the truth is, I started off passionate about early childhood, but joining family has really made me realise how important it is, you know, and, and that difference we can that can be made. And it's an honour to get to serve the kind of people who do the real work, you know, to, to work on content and campaigns and things to help kind of improve the, the voice of the early years because they do so much harder work than I do. <laughs> and unfortunately for significantly less less pay in most cases. So that's something that if, is kind of on my to-do list to make sure that we, together we can change eventually. Right. And a lot of my guests are saying that actually. So it's really nice to see how like united the sector is. And it's kind of like, no, power to us. We need to, we deserve more. And I think you're right. One of the things that I think you and family do really well is talk about every stakeholder in the early years sector. So yes, of course, our amazing practitioners, our specialists and things like that, but also our families, which is, you know, your namesake. So parents, carers and everybody else that is also included in raising and educating a child. So I wanted to ask you, especially from the work that you've done and what you've seen, what, why is that so important to have that relationship with these parents and carers? So I think if you if you'll kind of forgive me, I think you need to start off by explaining why it matters so much this phase of a child's life, this early childhood phase. Mm-hmm. And I know that's something that lots of the listeners will already be be passionate about. But you know, the fact that I think it's called the early years, you know, in England, it's called the early years foundation stage for a reason. Like this is the chance to build a foundation that will serve children for like the rest of their the rest of their lives. And if we you know, if we don't get it right, it doesn't necessarily mean that we can't get it back, but it takes a hell of a lot more work to to get that learning back and to rebuild that foundation. Um, so I think it's really important that we take this kind of part of, of education seriously. I mean, my favorite fact on this is, I can't remember the, the report itself, but it was a study that showed that 40% of the learning gap that is present at age 16 is already there at age five. So, so almost half of the gap between rich rich children and poor children um, and those who've gr- you know, grown up in a privileged household versus a less privileged household is um, the boiler man is here just as I'm in the middle of my spiel. <laughs> no, I'm no, so sorry. Go, I go, didn't go, want go, to go, interrupt go. you mid-flow. That's fine. I talked too long anyway. We can... 
Okay, so yeah, so I'm so sorry, the boiler man. The boiler no, man. don't worry. We're going back to why essentially this first part mm. is so important of their life. So the 40% yeah. gap in attainment is already at five years old. Yeah, 40% of it is already there at the age of five. So I can I can send you the study afterwards, but essentially the, what it explains is that the, the difference between a privileged child and one of his less privileged peers, we already know is quite large by the age of 16 as a base of all sorts of things. But by the age of five, 40% of it is already there. And so I kind of like to say, like, if we wait until they're out of nappies, we've waited too long, is kind of my perspective right. on this. Um, so I think, and I think that, you know, as I said, lots of the listeners will know exactly why early childhood is so important. But why is that relationship between parents and EY providers so important? Well, because three-year-olds can't look after themselves, fundamentally. <laughs> it's a, it sounds like a silly thing to mention, but there is providers and families need to have that close relationship because it's a collaborative endeavor. You know, the truth is if we go back a number of years, like let's say we go back 20 years, most of that kind of early childhood education and care was done at home. You know, nurseries in their kind of institutional way they're set up right now have not been around for that long. And now that we have so much of so many children spending so much of their time in an earlier setting, which is fantastic for all of those kind of early years outcomes and educational outcomes that we know are so important to to solving that learning gap, we need that team to be working closely together, right? So like mom, dad, uh, extended family, whatever shape your family is in, need to be able to have that relationship with the early years provider. Just from simple things like understanding what they're eating, understanding um how they're feeling i think some of the best examples of software like ours that i've seen used is just simple things like parents messaging the setting to say you know what granddad was here this weekend and you know little shana is feeling a little bit sad this morning because she loves granddad and she's so sad when he has to go home she doesn't really understand why he has to go home yeah and that means that the key person in the room can adjust to that and we expect that those kind of conversations are always going to be able to happen at drop-off time. But if you ask a practitioner what are their busiest, most stressful times of the day, they're going to tell you, you know, like 8, 8.30, pick up drop-off time and, you know, whatever yes. pick-up time is. It's crazy. Right? You, you'll remember how mad that kind of time is. And the idea that we can be expected to have, like, in-depth conversations about where children are at when you're being sort of physically handed three five-year-olds, at, yes. you know, three three-year-olds at a time. Yes. It's not necessarily going to happen, is it? No. And you know what? Especially, I think from my perspective and also speaking to other practitioners, when COVID hit, obviously that impacted us in so many ways. But one of the biggest ones was pick up and drop off because I remember it being so military. And of course, it had to be in order to keep everybody safe. And I'm immunocompromised, so I appreciate the the safety in terms of that. But we couldn't chat with the families we couldn't say how was the weekend you know as you know someone's come in and we don't know why they're upset like you said for example but also we then couldn't feedback at the end of the day they've had a really good day or you know whatever's happened and we you really felt the difference even though it was crazy before COVID and you know you were juggling children and someone was shouting from the back of the playground and you know you were trying to get these messages but when you didn't have it it really I felt a little bit lost like I didn't really know my families as much as I'd like to so that was really difficult and I think the thing is is COVID or no you know whatever people have gone back to with their kind of drop off and pick up procedure post COVID no one wants to be having those conversations around how many times you had to change their nappy yeah at 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 drop off time I mean for starters I've talked to a lot of really great practitioners who said to me 
I think when practitioners do that, sometimes they don't think about the impact of that on the child, you know, talking over the head like, oh, we've had another mm. accident today, you know, those kind of conversations, conversations, you know, not even conversations, but just quick notes on what they've eaten. Like when that can be handled by technology so easily, it means that if you do get the opportunity at drop off and pick up, pick up to, you know, have a proper conversation, it might actually be some, about something a little bit more in depth. Mm-hmm. You know, how that child's learning is, what interests they've picked up, what they've been up to during the day. Um, and then it's also, I feel at least, the safety net for if you can't have those conversations. So I wonder how many parents out there will remember, will recognize the feeling of sort of going, what have you been up to today? And just getting blanket silence, you know. And if you can instead say, if you've seen something, you know, on your app quickly that, you know, Charlie's been out playing with diggers in the sand. Oh, I saw you out in the, in the sand with the diggers today. That is a much more enlightening conversation for that sort of tired, hungry, slightly sick of speaking with other people child, you know, <laughs> yeah. right? And I think that that's kind of the power of greater collaboration because otherwise a child is being born in, being raised in two homes. Whereas yes. in this way, you know, we're back to that kind of, it, it takes a village to raise a child perspective, right? It's Absolutely. kind of like one consistent experience for them. And that is the consistency that I think is key. Um, absolutely. And especially not just for like in terms of practitioners, so they know how to teach a child or to approach a child and parents, you know, doing the same thing at home, like they always say. Um, but it's also for the child because this is the first time in their life they're stepping out into a different world that isn't their home. So they've learned all of these, you know, social cues and rules per se uh, that happen at home. And then they get put into a a nursery or, you know, a preschool or, you know, whatever the earliest uh, provider may be. And it's like, whoa, new set of rules. What's this? And it's so polarizing. I mean, it doesn't doesn't need to be that way. Right. And I think so much is about, you know, I've Someone, again, someone like Sue Allingham, who we talked about earlier, does, does, I've had some great conversations with her about settling in and how you handle that. I think Monet has similar ideas around how you make a child feel safe in those first kind of few moments in a, in a setting. And that kind of stuff is, again, that's about that collaboration. How are, you fill, how are you kind of filling in forms that are getting left on the desk and never, you know, and I think it actually has a real important sort of um, aspect of combating our, our kind of cultural misunderstandings you know if you live in a a area where children have maybe a quite different cultural upbringing or or some kind of style at home than you're used to making sure that your setting reflects their home in a meaningful way that's such a super super important part of kind of anti-racist practice as well Mm. and those kind of things again can come from that real collaborative approach of understanding what's going on at home, what's going on in the in the setting and making it a little bit more, as you say, consistent, right? Yeah. And you were touching on some really nice things there about what we can do to promote that consistency. I'm What I'm trying to put into words is that the impact that has on the child, not just in terms of education um, outcomes, because obviously we're going to get to that and we know that's really important. But what, is, what does something like that mean for the child, mean for the family, you know? I think it's just, you know, we know how important that sense of, of safety and self-regulation is, particularly at the start of a child's journey. You know, as you say, they've gone from spending 90% of their time with a small handful of people to being around, you know, for the first time, I have a lot of my friends who are kind of have children starting, you know, what we call burner hail out here in, in Copenhagen for the first time. And it's, of course, shocking when you talk to them and you realize, yeah, this is a huge change for that child to go from spending all their time with 
you know, people they know really well to suddenly lots of other children their own age. I think particularly in the kind of wake of COVID where so many of the children didn't get any of that socialising. Yeah. It's a huge change. And the more we can do to make those children feel welcome. And, and I don't want to, I think it would be completely wrong of me to suggest that somehow like technology or what we do at family is the only part of that. I've seen incredible practice out there that has been going on for decades before technology uh, you know, platforms like ours even existed. But the more we can do to make that settling in process better, the more we can do to make it more consistent between home. And, and, and as you said, outcomes, the more we can share child interests, you know, super, you know, you think about all of those wonderful schemas that parents don't necessarily even understand themselves. They quite often think the child's being naughty that they're putting round shoes on. <laughs> rather than realizing they're developing an enveloping you know schema um, literally recorded an episode about schemas with the cpd team last week it was hilarious i feel like i'm coming from the parent view <laughs> yeah it's like i think that does still sound like bad behavior to me but it's like there's no such thing as bad behavior right no, it's not. just and i think it's that interesting perspective of like that's where when it comes to for, for me and this is again me getting on my high horse but like all of the problems that we have in, in early years, whether it's a lack of funding and therefore how that filters down to the wages that staff get paid, how they're understood in the wider society, it all comes from respect. Mm -hmm. You know, if we respected practitioners much more, then we would be able to have funding that understood the quality of what they do. That can also start with parents. That can start with the fact that, and, and, and I'm very struck by how here in Denmark, I do feel like slightly differently to the UK it's known amongst parents that their pedagogue who they're going to go to is the person who is an expert if they have a problem at home they will actually go to them and sadly I don't think I think in many cases in many great settings in the UK we have that but parents should know that they can go to the practitioner as an expert on child development you know I always say it's a slightly crude example but if you have a problem with your plumbing you don't just like google things on the internet or ask your grandma you know what what did you, you do with your plumbing when you're going up? You go to a plumber. You, I call a plumber. At least I do. I mean, maybe some people do. I mean, I might Google and then call grandma first and then then fail. Then I might actually yeah, go. Not if I've got like a burst water pipe that is <laughs> exploding all over my floor. Yeah. Um, and I think it's just that it's interesting. There's a study that the government did like many years ago that basically showed that I think practitioners were like eighth or ninth in the list of people that, parents trust as an expert on oh, child really development sad. you know and I think that's it's why that collaboration comes in and I think the more we can show our expertise as practitioners to parents the more that will slowly I think hopefully start to change yeah it's oh that's maybe quite sad that yeah. statistic and that's like oh do you have an idea of why that is I think it's really interesting to see uh one of the things that we benefit from family, so we have a, we, the most of our, the vast majority of our nurseries and, and earlier settings are in the UK, but we do have settings here in Denmark, in Norway, in Germany, in the US. And I think one of the differences that I see is half sort of um, tactical and half cultural. So like the cultural part, part is that I do just see a slightly different attitude towards early childhood here, maybe than we do have in, in the UK, you know, that kind of maybe slightly Victorian aspect that we still have going on in some ways in the UK. And here it's very much this much more open free play. I think there's a better understanding. And then it does, I believe, come down to tactical things. And when I say that, I think about things like maternity policies. I think about things mm. like the way paternity is understood here. I think about things like how 
graduate-led the workforces. I think about the funding that's delivered. You know, so unfortunately, while I'm sure you and I would love to solve that uh, on this podcast, Charlotte, I don't think either of us are powerful enough. But I do, I do think it can be solvable, and I think they've solved it in places like New Zealand uh, mm. more so than we have done here. Uh, unfortunately, I think the United States sometimes are still in certain areas a little bit further behind us, even in the UK. And we can be really proud of some of the great early years traditions that we have in the UK. But we unfortunately do have still have some way to go. Yeah, and. Just in terms of thinking of our listeners, we, they might be listening and thinking, oh gosh, yeah, it's really overwhelming. We're fighting and losing battle here. But what what are the things that we can do to promote those strong relationships? And I'm not just talking about our earliest providers, but if you are a parent or carer that feels exactly how you are describing, how can we break down those barriers? I think it starts by just getting to know each other more. I mean, we look at that in any kind of walk of life, right? when you're talking to break down any prejudice, and I do unfortunately think there is a little bit of prejudice towards early years practitioners. It starts with getting to know each other more, having, and I think that can go for your use of technology, your use of, of conversations that drop off and pick off, but it can also just be like how you engage your community, the kind of events you have. I know also there is, I think there are some leaders out there who need to be more confident in letting their practitioners be the front of house for the nursery for the setting you know that it's not always doesn't always have to be the manager or the room leader who has those conversations um, and that takes a bit of bravery and probably it takes a lot of coaching because part of the reason why they might not do that is because those practitioners feel uncomfortable but that's a learning and development experience and I do believe that that is a huge part of it is feeling comfortable with practitioners actually developing a relationship uh, with parents maybe that key person relationship with uh, the parent of the child who they're the key person of is kind of a classic example yeah 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 and I heard you touch a little bit about technology there I feel like I mean obviously technology is kind of like changing the world AI is crazy at the minute by the way it's uh, it's just suddenly appeared I don't know maybe I'm just not very good at it but it's just suddenly here and now it's like oh okay we really everyone needs to get on this because it's going to be everywhere but how do you, I think technology from a personal view has really changed how the early years sector works because like you're saying about that communication with parents and carers and things, it would, you know, used to be just through voice and through verbals or writing notes, but now we've got like online learning journals. Um, we've got email and text messaging services, you know, all of these things that we didn't have before. And of course you have platforms. So how do you think that's maybe evolved the earlier sector or not? How do you think the relationship's gone with that? I would actually, I'd probably say that uh, the the changing earlier sector has actually evolved the use of the need for technology. So I think occasionally, you know, I come up against someone who says like, it's all well and good what you're doing at family. Like it sounds great, but wasn't it really better back in my day when like parents were parents and practitioners were practitioners and we just left the kids at drop off and, you know, I don't want my practitioners spending time taking photos of kids all day for example. Mm. And I think one of the things I always say to contend that is like in the late nineties and the early two thousands, before we really had like a lot of adoption of, of technology in the early years. Um, I can't say I was particularly around for, for it at the time. <laughs> um, but I think um, the truth was, is back then we were still at an age where there was often just one caregiver at home who knew most of the information. It was mostly mum, you know, Mm. Uh, who had either spent a large chunk of the first part of that child's life, you know, with them or, and, and I think that as we kind of grow out to have less of this kind of traditional nuclear family, the needs of being able to keep more people informed is massively changing. 
right? You know, um, and making sure that like, we don't just hand over a slip of paper that goes to the person who happens to pick up and just gets lost in a bag, right? So I think there's that kind of like changing nature of the families that we work with that is massively for the better, right? Like you see the workforce participation of mothers in this country and women in general improving. That is a huge, that we need to change that and need to keep changing that. But it does also mean the demands on the nurseries change. And then on the flip side, I think you just have to remember, like I've got a timeline somewhere, but when I look back and it's like 2000 was when the first kind of curriculum guidance was introduced. Development Matters only came in in 2012. Ofsted, I think, only started inspecting early years settings in like 2008. Then we had 15 hours funding 2013, I think. Then we had 30 hours funding a handful of years later. So it's like, why is it that educators and the leaders of nursery settings need different kinds of technology? Well, because they have to do a much, much broader job than they ever did before. Yeah. Um, and that's why I say you kind of go through these phases of like the paper era and then maybe the kind of like technologies just started to come in like emails. And then you had some of our, you know, the kind of nursery management software era where maybe you had some of these database tools, Yes. you know, yeah. administer like, like clever spreadsheets kind of right. Um, and what I would say now is that we're in the collaborative era, right? We're in this, what we call the early childhood platform era, where it needs to be software that is centered around the child that is centered around the parent or the family member and the, the, the educators and the managers kind of collaborating together. And that goes more to, to more than just messages back and forth, right? This is also when a parent gets their invoices on the same app that they're getting photo updates of the child on, guess what? They pay on time more, mm. you know? The fact that a parent can go to one place to pay, like in family, for example, you can even pay an app. How much simpler is that than them having to remember to direct debit a handful of cash from their bank account once, you know? Yeah. And I think that um, uh, also just information, you know, making sure that, for example, at family, we have shared child profiles. So the, pra- the, the practitioner and the manager can enter information into the child profile, but the parents can as well. And that old fashioned idea of a parent ringing up the nursery and going, my little one's just had a new allergy to this thing. Can you note that down on the system? Yeah. That is an unnecessary point if the parent can just input that directly that's where i think it's about saying one the needs of collaboration are different and two practitioners and leaders are under more time pressure than ever so whatever we can do to make their lives simpler the better 100 percent. and i was also as you were talking i was thinking how unique the job for early years practitioners and teachers are compared to say national curriculum or primary or secondary teachers like there's so much documentation for the for the practitioner and the parent. There's so many things that you've got to do. Into, you know, like you say, pay the invoices for your providers or, you know, fill in the forms every term to get your free 30 hours or fill in the form to go and get the milk cartons every term or, you know, just things like that. And it, it's really overwhelming. And I can imagine as a parent doing it, maybe even for the first time with your with your first child is kind of like, whoa, like this is a lot filling in those forms with county to even get your child registered onto a school. Like they are so thick. And I actually, when I was um, early years lead, I dedicated an evening for my new families to come in and do the packs with me because I was like, you can't, you can't do this on your, this is horrendous. And that is just for native English speaking families, like poor families who didn't have English as a first language. They just came to me crying and I was like, let me help you, you know? And it's all, like you say, it's all in different places. But if we have it in one central place, like I'm guessing family do, right? So tell us more about what family do in terms of solving that issue. 
Yeah, so I guess it's just even simple things like, um, you know, we're just actually tomorrow releasing our, our new like registration forms feature where basically um, nurseries can set up a website form where parents submit a few bits of information, super simple, that goes straight into family and then that sets up on your kind of wait list. So you have the understanding of what the child's needs might be. And then if you choose to sign up that child, you just click a button and that then becomes their child profile and family, right? Oh, wow. We also work with, um, you know, integrate with solutions like Funding Loop, for example, who are a huge help in making 30 hours like claim process significantly easier. And we have more to go. Like I would love for us to have the opportunity to work closer with government. Unfortunately, as you might know from your any experience working with government, they tend to be uh, pretty uninterested in trying to solve some of these things. I think the best luck we've had is working with Ofsted and, and the DfE in the past on some of the kind of child development side to get some of these forms and, and things that you need to fill out a bit simpler. Because you're right, it's overwhelming for parents and it's overwhelming for educators who frankly should be spending their time doing something else, you know, on the floor with the children. I, we have a, I have an onboarding session here with all new starters at family and new employees because of course we hire people with early years experience and people with zero early years experience, you know. And I have this one slide that shows all the things that, you know, people in an early year setting need to do. And it's like, they need to be early childhood development experts they need to be first aid experts they need to be dietitians they need to be dentists they need to be you know they need to understand the rigors of uh, business and how to run a profit and loss statement and they need to be marketeers and they also you know and the list goes on and on and on and on and anything we can do to grab some of those things and go we'll take that off your hands the more they can focus because I think the truth is is that most people whether they're leaders or whether they're practitioners they get into the sector for one thing and that is to make the lives of those children that are in their setting a better place and the more we can get them to focus on that the happier and the better the world ends up being all right just stick it all on a t-shirt you know it's probably not a t-shirt big enough for that speech but that was brilliant i mean if it can be made it it will be done i'll (laughs) I'll guarantee that but it's it's so hits the nail on the head like it's just a lot and we do need help and that's why we've got people like you and hopefully I hope people feel like Twinkle do that as well in terms of supporting parents and and practitioners planning assessment and things like that but speaking of assessment there is one thing that I feel like maybe technology has not necessarily demonized but it's been used should I say as a way of hyper focusing on numbers turning children into data Like that's how you track assessment now. That's how you track progress now. When it was before, you know, it used to be, yes, we know the children, you know, and it's more of a holistic view. And there was a time, I feel like it's kind of maybe turning now, but technology in terms of tracking and all those graphs and line graphs and percentages and, you know, all of that, all that software was just turning children into numbers. Do you feel that that may be a hindrance in software or... Absolutely. I'm going to have to get remind you to do the hand signal that you need to do when I go off for too long, okay. because on this one, I'm, I'm incredibly passionate about this particular topic. And it's, it's because when the new EYFS came out in England a handful of years ago, we saw it as a bit of an opportunity to change the way that software was doing things when it came to kind of tracking and assessment. And the reason why is because if you'll think back to 2012 when Development Matters first came in, and actually it's really interesting, we did a documentary on this that we made with a few different people about the kind of, we call it the EYFS tracking lie. 
And it was about how it was that we came to this point that, you know, we were kind of essentially ticking off statements right. when development matters as some kind of idea of progress. And when you look back at the history of it, it makes total sense. You know, first of all, we had the uh, desired outcomes, I think they were called. And they were, they were just desired, you know. They were just kind of a, a, a goal to maybe get to. Then they became early learning goals. Suddenly now we're actually trying to get somewhere. And then rightfully so, practitioners said, okay, well, we need to get these children to this goals by the start of, you know, by the end of the UIFS. How do we get there? And then you had a wonderful document like Development Matters come along to explain some of those stepping stones that might get the child there. And of course, despite saying it on every single page, it was naturally used like a, a checklist. You know, it was turned mm. by, first of all, by companies into kind of like uh, printables and then software came along. And then when we came along in 2013, we just thought, truthfully, we just thought that was the way it was done. Yeah. And I remember back when I started a family, though, I was like, I'm not 100% sure that this is exactly right. And the Danes working in the office would go, these English people are mad. Like, <laughs> You know, in Denmark, they just send the kid, you know, they just send your kid out into the forest with a knife and a, and a blowtorch and like to see a lady. Brilliant. And in England, it's like, you know, we must tick off three kick a ball to prove that the child has the kick a ball skill, you know. And I think for a long time, practitioners knew this was a, was a weird way of doing things, but we were, became quite beholden by it. And you have, you have the kind of, the, the kind of technology is playing a part in that. I think Ofsted played a big part in it historically. I think local authorities played a big part in it historically of asking for this kind of tracking so that they could prove certain things were going on, particularly with children with special educational needs and disabilities. Mm. Um, anyway, and and so it's my, my point being is when we did that documentary, it was to me, it was, like, oh, well, it was perfectly explainable why we've got to this stage. Like it makes total sense why this expectation is now there. But when I hear almost every single practitioner and leader I talk to telling me this is totally wrong, I think it's time to change. And so we worked, you know, I think that desire to change, it was already there in the EYFS reforms in 2020. I think Ofsted were actually very, very clear on their desire to change that as well. But we tried to, we actually worked quite closely with both of them, uh, both Julian and with Ofsted and also with the team behind Birth to Five Matters to develop our new approach. And I sort of summarized it in, in one sentence. And that was like, we want technology to help practitioners to, to share, note, and understand child development without interfering. And the point of that is to say, practitioners are not memory sticks. It's okay to write things down, you know, whether that's post-it notes or whether that's observations in a platform like FAM. That's not a problem. It's a great idea to share with parents, you know, back to the collaborative angle that we've been talking about for the whole time, like sharing child development with families is really important. And also we definitely need some things to help them understand child development. And so we kind of rethought really it. And now in family, you can only tag broad areas of learning, areas of the EYFS rather than specific statements in your observations. You build these more kind of holistic assessments, maybe once every three, four months together with you know, the, the maybe a key person would go and do it with their room leader about a child to kind of understand broad development. We got rid of all tracking and now just have kind of generic progress reporting that comes from those assessments where we ask people things like, uh, do you feel like the child is progressing well or needs some extra support in this area? Um, and all that has kind of come together to, and I think in that way, we've also hopefully led the industry a little bit. Now we see a lot of other software companies also falling in line and at the end of the day, it's easy to blame the practitioners or the leaders 
for how they're using the tools, but the tools need to be correct as well. And, you know, we know that the things that we use have a big impact on how we do our practice. So hopefully we've kind of played our small part there in reversing that move towards, as you say, making every child a number. Yeah. And you know what? I also feel like a lot of it comes from misunderstanding what the earliest sector is. So, hello. Hello. Oh, you're amazing. Thank you. Do I need to tell my landlord anything? All right. Thank you. You're the best. Thank you. What was your name again? There is, there'll be like a little thing that will say, how did I do, right? Well, if they do, I'll say that you're very, you were very flexible and I'm very sorry for not being there. (laughs) You too. Bye. I am such a terrible host. I'm just, you're just like the nicest person I've ever met. What? Is how I feel from that. Like you're just, every time you're both so nice to me and so nice to the Poor electricians come. I feel bad because they were doing. He's just doing his job, and I couldn't be there and be present. You know, I'm like, oh no, I do care about you, and I appreciate your work, well, and I'm really sorry that I double booked myself by accident. <laughs> but thank you for sorting my gas central heating. I'm glad that my house won't blow up. <laughs> yeah, that is important. Right. Vitally important. Right, and also thank you to you for being so patient. And I'm so sorry. This is ridiculously unprofessional. Like, not even slightly. Unperks of working from home sometimes, well, right? Telling me. It's like, oh yeah. You have to juggle everything at once and I didn't yeah. do it very well. So what I was trying to say was the misconceptions of how to use tracking like you're talking about has stemmed from perhaps bodies or groups of people that actually don't understand how the earlier sector work. And it's like child development isn't a tick list. It, that's not how life works. That's not how children develop. Uh, there are so many peaks and troughs that are very, that's why we've got that whole unique child part, right? It's that, especially in the first zero to five years of life, like you can't standardize a child's progress because that's just mm-hmm. not how the brain works. Like the brain is such a complex muscle, organ, brilliant thing that in the first five years it's working itself out and that's fine. But it then got to that point where maybe it wasn't understood that that's how it works. Or there was a fear of, oh my gosh, things are so widely different. It makes it look like we don't know what we're doing. Let's try and standardize it and track it. And then it's kind of led to that point to where we I are couldn't, now. No, I couldn't agree with you more. I was just going to say, I, I can't remember which way around it was, but one of the documents, I think it was Development Math, the new Development Matters, talks about learning as a spider web. And I think it's Birth to Five Matters that talks about it as like a ballroom dance. And I think they're both true, but it's like, either way, it's not a ladder, you know? Yes. It's not like one step, two steps, three steps. And then once you do this, you do this, you do this. And I think that um, what I love about, there's a great story that my colleague, Julia, who's a level three qualified practitioner, worked in the early years for a number of years. She said she, when she was a young practitioner, had had this story where a child came to her and her kind of colleague and said, there was a, there was a, one of those egg time, like time glass things. And he said, look, it's time, you know? And like, that's like for a three-year-old, sort of like a borderline, I don't know, like PhD level. Like that is a real wow moment. Like what a concept that they've yeah. managed to get across there. That should, like if we think about observations as wow moments, that is a wow, wow moment, right? And Julia went back and, and had a conversation later with her, the other practitioner who was that child's keeper. I said, oh, you're going to write that up in an observation. That's so exciting. She said, oh, I had a look through like the ring binder of development matters and like I couldn't find it anywhere. And I think that is the biggest issue with this kind of checklisting. Like, it does an okay job, 
but what do we miss out on because we are so focused on on that one thing absolutely and I have to say, I fooled, I fooled victim to this when I, was a, when I was a teacher and a practitioner. And it wasn't sometimes always, oh, I can't find the statement for it. It was sometimes, oh, well, we've got enough observations in that area. What about this one? And it's like, you had to check yourself and be like, oh my God, what am I doing? Of course, we should still include that. But there was this pressure if you have to have a broad range of evidence on all the, you know, all the areas and blah, blah. And it really did not become child-centered anymore. It was data-centered. Yeah. And it's just... Exactly that. And it's like, well, you know, when you think about the early years Alliance report that came out, I think back in, back some time ago, 2018 or something now, the Minds Matter report, where they talked about the fact that I think like 96% of early years staff say they're stressed out by admin and paperwork. And it's like, if we all agree that this isn't particularly helpful, and it might be detrimental to our understanding of children's learning, and it's definitely, definitely detrimental to our staff's well-being, and what are we doing it for? And I, I'm really glad that I really feel the tide starting to turn in the UK about this kind of idea of datafying children because I, it's a slightly uncouth way of putting out, but I have to mention it because when we were recording this documentary, I think three of the people I interviewed mentioned it. But they, there's this old phrase in education that the pig doesn't get any heavier by weighing it. Mm. I think it's so it's such an interesting point. It's like... Yeah reclaiming assessment in order to understand the path forward not just weighing children for the sake of weighing them that's that's a really powerful image i think that would be quite good that could be on a t-shirt let's do it (laughs) done we're gonna sell thousands this is great um but i know that we've been making all of these points kind of from a biased perspective because you know we're talking about the english uh, curriculum and you know all of the policies and things and how that's historically changed in terms of like the wider global community do you think this is a an issue or just a topic that's unique to the england or do you think you see you're seeing it everywhere i think uh the kind of the zoomed out trend that is for sure happening everywhere is just like that story that i told about the kind of the growth of the earlier sector and the focus in the UK is kind of happening at different stages everywhere. Like you'll see how, I mean, it never unfortunately got through, but in Joe Biden's Build Back Better plan in the US, I think he's set aside 2 billion or something or some obscene amount of money, maybe more than that for like universal pre-K, right? And in general, you're just seeing like a lot more investment here in Denmark. I think 90% of the settings are are actually publicly funded. So it's it's different all over the world. But the truth is, is that when people are interested, when governments are investing money in things, they're normally quite interested in understanding how it's going, which I think is not an unfair point. But as you say, it's quite often implemented in a slightly incorrect way. Well, the reason why I do think it's a global trend is this kind of datification of, of early years and like proof of how children are, are progressing probably does come from the fact that governments are just have more skin in the game and are more interested in generating that data back. So I think that's definitely one global trend that I see everywhere. And the other global trend that I see absolutely everywhere, like we're, we're so lucky here in Denmark to have pedagogues who are well-trained and who have are paid compared to the UK relatively well, still not well enough in my opinion, but we have a huge shortage of them. And it's the same all over the US. It's the same all over Europe. In Germany, it's a massive problem, despite, again, being paid compared to the UK relatively well. And it's for sure a problem, you know, on our shores in the United Kingdom. So, you know, that that trend of of staffing shortages and staff, not it comes back to what we talked about earlier. It comes back to not just 
the craft of early education, but the importance of early childhood not being widely understood enough. And it's why I, I do definitely have some hope in things like the scheme being run by the Duchess of Cambridge around early education. I do think we need some of these like wider engagement things to just help the public as a large understand the importance of it, because otherwise we're not going to get any change. Yeah, and I also think as well that unless you're a parent or unless you work in the earliest sector, you don't really understand how important it is. Like businesses and companies should be involved in this too, because we are literally building the, your future, you know, employees, your future uh, CEOs, your future self-help starters. You know, like it's, it, it impacts everybody. So I think everybody should. I don't know, maybe I'm just getting on my soapbox here, but everyone should pay attention to this, this sector. No, and I totally agree. And I think I'm... I don't have any children myself, but it's something that I feel like sometimes I'm the only person who isn't a parent who yeah, me cares too. about this stuff, you know. Um, and I totally agree with you. I think it's um, it's something that we really need to get more people interested in for like social justice reasons. It's that thing, if we wait until they're out of nappies, then we've waited too long. We need to get started earlier so that we don't have to spend a bunch of money. One of my other stats I love throwing around is we did a little bit of analysis on the kind of level of funding of the earlier sector across the OECD, which is basically a fancy word for like the rich countries throughout the world. So this is even in like the richest countries in the world. They spend 40% of the funds that they spend on early years compared to like all later education. So while they're investing in Bunsen burners in university laboratories, they're not investing at the stage where it's most impactful. And for me, that is just wrong because we know that the work that we do in the early years is the one that has the largest impact on the kind of later trajectory um and if we can get that sorted then i think we'll just have a lot less problems on our hands mic drop at the end i, I won't drop my mic because it's oh is it expected? precious yeah i don't know yet it's not mine i borrowed it so i don't really <gasps> want to have to give it back broken oh yeah no no let's try not to do that okay well on that wonderful note how about we end our episode with a little bit of fun you've taught us loads i feel very empowered i feel like and i hope our listeners feel like that too like yeah look how important we are but also i i hope that our parents listening feel that as well and together there's no stopping if we all work together we build that community then we will take over the world absolutely that's right So we have a game at the end of our episodes with our guests and we call it Would You Rather Teacher Edition? And the first question will always be the same, but the other two are a surprise and they're kind of made so we get to know you a bit more. Okay, so don't be stressed. Be very stressed. It's just to get to know you. I don't even think about this. It's either this or that. Okay, so would you rather tea or coffee? Coffee every time. Flavoured? Black? Like, how do you have your coffee? Black coffee. Maybe an espresso if it's, you know, if I need it. I do drink tea and I'm trying to cut down on my caffeine consumption, which is kind of drinking more caffeine, (laughs) but like less of it, which is tea. Yes. But coffee all the way. Like, do you have like four or five cups a day? Where are we? Well, I know you're cutting down. I'm trying to cut down, but sometimes it's more than that, yeah. (gasps) Wow. I think I would be bouncing off the walls. Unfortunately, it's just like diminishing, very quick diminishing returns. Oh, well, you know, it's your answer. I will not judge. That's fine. No, you, you can judge. You, I deserve <laughs> it. Question number two. Would you rather ABBA or Queen? And I will definitely judge you on this answer because I have a very clear one. No, 
no. What do you mean after? Give me, no. give me, give me a man after midnight. Oh, come on. Now. Come, no, Queen. How could you? Don't tell me you haven't driven in the car and sang every single part of Bohemian Rhapsody. Come on. The challenge is, I will say, it's quite hard to live in any Scandinavian nation for too long and not be sort of drawn under the duress oh, of the yeah. other life. Oh, that's true. The problem is, and I don't, don't tell my colleagues, but like, they don't have that much great stuff that comes out of here. <laughs> the whole sort of Scandinavian region. So, so the one it's like, it's, thing. I, no, I mean, they've got some, there's lots of lovely things about, but they don't have a lot of pop stars. You yeah. Know? So when they get one, it's kind of the same with sports people. It's like suddenly everyone in Denmark likes cycling now because they won the Tour de France last year. It's like yeah. you didn't like cycling before. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel it. We should be we should be lucky. We get to pick and choose our things we actually like. Here, they basically have to like whatever's. Like, you makes must it. like ABBA. That's one of the rules when you like move to a. It's sort of in there, yeah. Unfortunately, I like it. Well, I'm sorry. I feel your pain, but I will die forever a Queen fan forever. I knew that you can't set me up with. I feel like it's rude to set me up with would you rather's that have a correct. A right oh. and wrong answer. Well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> oh dear. Uh oh. Yeah, that's right. You caught me there. You caught me there. Uh, okay, moving on. <clears throat> Number three. Let's just move quickly on from that one. Would you rather ban from the classroom singing or dancing? It's not. I'm one of those terrible people who, when they get asked would you rather questions, I really need to like dig into the. You know, for example, if I've got a child in my classroom who starts dancing along to a song, do I literally have to? say to them stop dancing now yes like yeah like suspension like that's life is over for everybody does not exist i'm more of a i'm a musician myself i think singing is so important for early language development all that but i feel like it would be easier to stop children singing than to stop them dancing oh do you think so because i don't oh baby shark right exactly Like those catchy, th- like Bluey, uh, Paul, but like they just, they know all the songs, even the songs you don't want them to. I remember when I was younger, my little brother knew all the words to Sex on the Beach by um, Fanger Boys. He was three. I mean, I think this is where I'm showing my lack of in-classroom experience there. <laughs> so I'm so embarrassed that you've pulled this one on me oh, last no. minute. I'm really sorry. I didn't I'm really joking. Well, then um, if that's the case, I'm definitely banning dancing. I'm a singing guy. Yeah, but you love a boogie. Come on. I'm setting you up here. Neither is the correct answer. Neither is the correct answer. (laughs) But we've learned more about you. I didn't know you were a musician. What do you play? I've been a drummer since I was 10 years old. I also play guitar and I used to play trombone back in the day, but that is a long time ago. Cool. No, it's cool. I like the the cool ones. I used to try and play sax. Okay. But I was terrible, so my parents threw it out. No, you should pick it up again now. You don't have to live with them. Uh, I think that ship has sailed. I'm good. All right. <laughs> Although I did, I did want to try. I really do want to try drums. I love getting into the beats of things. Drums is great. drums is good. Drums is easy to be easy to be all right at. Very hard yeah. to be really good at. So it's got a nice learning curve. Oh, there you go. I like it. Wh- have you got any? I have. Right. So I felt like if you were going to spring, would you rather surprises on me? But I feel a bit stupid about my one now because your one was. Yours ones were at least related to the classroom, but my classic one, I can't remember whether we talked about this already when we had our intro call, but... Oh, go on. Would you rather fight one horse-sized duck (laughs) or a hundred duck-sized horses? Oh, wow. What a dilemma. Okay. 
Well, I so okay. The hundred duck-sized horses, I'd be really worried that they'd swarm. Are they like the swarming type? I feel like there's a hive mind thing going to go on there. I, th- I think, yeah, I think horses do sort of like to, to sort of roll together, don't they? Yeah, so that'd be quite intimidating, just at, like chucking off a sea of tiny horses just sounds a bit... I'm going to go for the, 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 the horse-sized duck. I think that would yeah. be quite fun. Like, I just like rub its tummy and give it a tickle and it'll be all right and it'll love me in the end. But yeah, I, I am, I'm worried about the bill, I won't lie to you. <laughs> If that if it can get you front on, yeah. Think about the size of that bill. Cracks and bones, yeah. Could be in trouble. It, neither is a particularly int- exciting prospect, is it? To be honest, I think I'm with you though. I think I could sort of. It sounds awful, but I think you could just do some sort of sweeping kicks, couldn't you, to try and sort of <laughs> get rid of the. the you the just hear little mini neighs, like oh, yeah. You just yeah. I mean, yeah. if that scenario ever comes up. I'll let you know. Yeah, maybe we can fight them together. Oh, what a team. That would be great. (laughs) You take the duck-sized horse, I'll take the horse-sized ducks. Together, unstoppable. This is brilliant. (laughs) Oh my God, that that was such a good question. You can have that one for free for all future guests. Oh, maybe I'm just going to change the tea and coffee one to, right, (laughs) duck-sized horse. (laughs) That's brilliant. And that made me think, I wonder what our listeners would pick. Maybe I'll put it on our socials and see what they say. I'd be, I'd love to see a vote. I would like to know. All right, what I'll the tag you in. Of general it. population thinks. <laughs> Brilliant. I'll let you know. Because I've thought about it long and hard, and it's can, not easy. I can tell. Yeah, it's, yeah. I'm gonna have to mull it over a bit more. We'll see what happens. Yeah. Matt, it's been so much fun talking to you. Thank you for coming on. Before you go, I feel like you've brought up some really cool topics and our listeners will probably want to know more. So where can we find you on socials, um, on your website? Where can we find family? And have you got anything coming up that our listeners can join in with? Absolutely. Uh, so, the, I mean, the best thing, the best way to find really anything about us is just to Google family without the I, so F-A-M-L-Y. And then Google will say, did you mean family with the I? And then you say no. <laughs> And you'll find our website, you'll find we're on all the socials on Instagram, Twitter, you know, YouTube, all that sort of stuff. Um, I can definitely recommend a couple of things I've talked about today, the EYFS Tracking Lie. If you, again, if you just Google that, you'll find that. It's a really interesting documentary we did together with, um, you know, with Pimentel and Sue Allingham and uh, a bunch of cool people around like the, EYF, the history of the EYFS. And also we last year released our Respect the Sector report, which is kind of covers a lot of these topics around what we've also been talking about today around like kind of respecting the earlier sector and found some super interesting kind of stats in amongst that unfortunately not happy reading but hopefully something as kind of a platform for change um and if people are interested you know we work with i think now over six thousand nurseries uh earlier settings throughout the uk uh whether you're using software right now or you're ready to start your journey with software um, we actually have an offer running until September, where if you sign up before September, it's a you just pay a pound until September because we know that people are super busy over summer and maybe uh, want a little bit of extra time to get set up before September starts. So you'll find that offer on our website. Do go and check it out. People are happy with it. And that is makes me the worst marketer ever, but that's the best <laughs> I can say. People love what we do. Thankfully, we're totally indebted to the wonderful like hundreds, hundreds and hundreds and thousands of, of customers that we have. So 
the best proof, I think, rather than me trying to sell it to you, is you can always find reviews of us online. And it's almost entirely people saying lovely things. So if you are interested in changing, then please yeah, do go and check us out. And I'll put everything that you've just said as well in the episode description. So you're just a click away. Nice. Look at that. Look at that. Amazing. Thank you so much again, Matt. Have a wonderful afternoon evening in Copenhagen are you forward or behind we're in front but it's always it's that tricky time of day right we had a conversation with my friend the other day about this like when does the evening start in summer it's definitely later but how later right six Um, seven let's put another vote out let's put it to the people if in doubt we'll get the data on the horse-sized ducks and when does evening start the most important questions that we need to know yeah I agree I agree have a wonderful day Matt and hopefully I'll get to speak to you soon All right. Thanks, Shana, for having me on. Catch you soon. There we are. Thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it and had a little bit of a giggle at my expense, I'm sure. I am definitely going to put that horse duck question thing on social media. Let me know what you would pick to fight. But that's it for now. I hope you have a wonderful day, whatever you're doing, and I will speak to you really soon. Goodbye. So that's it for today's episode. I hope you really enjoyed it. If you would like to join in or would like to know more, then come and find us on our social media sites. We have a Facebook page, Facebook groups, an Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, Pinterest, and YouTube. All the links of where to find us will be in our podcast description. Come and join the conversation. And whatever you're doing today, I hope you have a great day.